0: Today's sermon text is Titus 3, 1 through 15. It can be found in the Bible in the rack in front of you on page 998. Hear the word of the Lord. Remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work, to speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle and to show perfect courtesy toward all people. By the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. This saying is trustworthy, and I want you to insist on these things, so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. These things are excellent and profitable for people. But avoid foolish controversies, genealogies, dissensions, and quarrels about the law, for they are unprofitable and worthless. As for a person who stirs up division, after warning him once and then twice, have nothing more to do with him, knowing that such a person is warped and sinful, he is self-condemned. When I send Artemis or Tychus to you, do your best to come to me at Nicopolis, for I have decided to spend the winter there. Do your best to speed Zenus the lawyer, and Apollos on their ways. See that they lack nothing. And let our people learn to devote themselves to good works so as to help cases of urgent need and to not be unfruitful. All who are with me send greetings to you. Greet those who love us in the faith. Grace be with you all. May God bless the reading of his word.
1: Would you pray with me this morning? Heavenly Father, make your word a swift word, passing from our ears as we listen into our hearts, and then from our hearts to our lips in conversations, so that as the rain does not return empty, so neither may your word, but accomplish that for which you gave it. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. In 1985, Alex Zlakin was a talented sculptor living in a country that he desperately wanted to get out of. Alex, his wife, and their young child lived in a small apartment in the city of Leningrad in what was at the time the Soviet Union. Their apartment was the size around of a, a college dorm room, so a pretty small place for the three of them. Uh, they shared a kitchen and a bathroom with a community of other apartments in their block. Uh, a friendship between an American student and a journalist, they, they struck a friendship over while this student was over in the Soviet Union. And that led to suspicion. It led to multiple times of being questioned about why Alex had this type of relationship and this friendship. On a much more mundane level, Alex loved classic rock music like the Beatles and Queen and the Eagles and he said that all of the stuff that was officially sanctioned in the Soviet Union was terrible. So he really wanted to get out. And in 1990, when he was given the opportunity to immigrate into the United States as a refugee, he jumped at the chance. He and his family. And looking back at this day in an article in Forbes, he calls the day he arrived in America one of the most important days in his life. And though immigrating came with many challenges, he has supported his family, he started multiple businesses throughout his years here, he's traveled throughout the country, and he's embraced the United States as his newfound homeland. Now, for someone like Alex, what do you think that change of allegiance has done for the way that he speaks about the United States, say, when he is talking to relatives back in Russia. How would his conversa- conversation with them maybe be different than it were- was earlier? Or how would he react if he overheard one of his neighbors here in the States mutter about how much they wanted to get out, how much they hated being here? Do you think he would be more or less likely than someone else to support other people trying to find an opportunity to come into the United States. I think Alex's experience of immigrating and finding refuge in a new country has transformed the way that he talks about it. It means that he wants to promote and to protect and find ways to invite others into his new home. And this morning, as we look at Titus chapter 3, I think we're going to see some of those same things happening As those who are new in Christ find ourselves in this type of situation. And so the main point that we learn from this chapter taken as a whole is this recipients of God's grace desire the spread of God's grace. Recipients of God's grace desire the spread of God's grace. And as we talk about this morning, the way that this text kind of divides up as you heard it read even earlier... Uh, this is, addresses interactions with a few different groups of people even. And it's going to show how the center of the text in verses 3 through 7, how it impacts those different groups and our relationship with them. So as we walk through this, we're going to look at kind of four main points. We'll look at the gospel really there at verses 3 through 7 and see that, how that motivates us to adorn the gospel, adorn it to and beautify it, make it attractive to those who are outside the church. How the gospel encourages, calls us even to separate from those who are dividing the church and how it calls us to support those who are serving the church. And my prayer for you this week, for us this morning, is that our joy and the beauty of God's gospel would lead us in such a way to spread his gospel, to want to see it go forward and call more people into it through our own lives this week. This is our our last week in the book of Titus. And throughout the book, there's been this kind of steady drumbeat that you heard again today. Paul has sounded at every corner that a right understanding of God's word, a right understanding of the grace that we've received in Christ transforms people so that you see a change in their life. There's a noticeable impact on those who belong to God. There is no such thing in Paul's language as a true disciple of Jesus who is not in some way changed and molded more into Christ's image. And in chapter 2, he really tied this together, tied the gospel of Jesus with showing how that works among relationships and discipleship primarily inside the church. So what does it look like for older men, younger men, older women, younger women, bond servants? What does that look like with Jesus as the foundation, the gospel as the foundation? But these Cretan Christians did not live inside Christian communes, and that was really hard to say the first time I wrote that. Where their interactions were with only other Christians. Right? They, they lived and worked in places where they were constantly around people who did not know Christ. And so in this final chapter, Paul kind of turns that corner and helps them to begin thinking about what their relationship should look like with those who are outside the church. And that's where he starts here. And I'm, gonna, I'm borrowing a phrase. If you look back up to chapter 2, verse 10, there's this little phrase that Paul says to bond servants that he wants them to act in a way that adorns the gospel, to beautify the gospel. And so that's what's happening here. In verses 1 through 2, Paul's encouraging these Christians and us to adorn or beautify, make the gospel attractive for those outside the church. And he starts by telling them that this looks like a right relation to civil authorities. So look at verse 1. Remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient be ready for every good work. This is at least kind of one of the clues that we've stepped out of the church house. We're no longer in the confines of the church. We're more in like the city hall. Okay, so while you can turn, if you watch political ads, uh, which you probably don't do for fun, but you just can't get away from them during political season. When you hear them in Alabama, a lot of times you'll hear people say like, he's a man of faith she goes to this church and belongs there. That's like seen as a a benefit for them and saying, vote for me because I'm a Christian. There were no signs on the cities of Crete saying, vote for Felix, follower of a crucified Messiah. That wasn't a selling point for them. So we have stepped outside of the church walls and these government officials were almost certainly not promoting Christ. It would actually do them harm. They were probably promoting something like worshiping the emperor, giving obedience to him. And the call to the Christians in Crete is not just to go and then take power, or to just break off and to uh, start their own governments, but instead, at this place, he's saying to be submissive and obedient to those who are in positions of authority. Now, as soon as we hear things like that, or at least one of the things we hear is like, what about this? Okay, so this is a mandate that, that does have qualifications. So think about Romans 13.1 which expresses the same kind of idea. It says, let every person be subject to governing authorities. And then it gives this reason. For there is no authority except from God. And those that have that exist have been instituted by God. So we should be subject to civil authority because God is the one who has placed them there. But this text, I think the one in Romans 13, one, actually helps us, reminds us, that there is another authority. That there is an authority above mayors and above governors and above presidents. The one who ultimately, not just you and I, but all people will give an account to. And so where where government does compel a people to disobey or disregard God's law, we have examples in the Bible that we can turn to. We've got men like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and Daniel. We, We must obey God rather than men even if submission at that point looks like submitting to the consequences of our actions. But there are many, if not most, areas where a government's actions aren't contrary to God's law. They fall more into the the area of what we call wisdom. What is the wise thing to do for this people in this place at this time? And in these areas, Paul is encouraging a posture of submission to these rulers and authorities. And so the question for these people in Crete, and for God's people today, is what's your general posture towards those in positions of civil authority? If people looked at your life, would they describe that your posture is one where they would say, she's ready for every good work? Or would it be, he's really ready to work for their downfall, and to make it really hard? We can go elsewhere in a place like 1 Timothy 2, 1 through 2, where Paul says, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, thanksgiving be made for all people, for kings and all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. Does your, does your submission to civil authority look like even praying for those people? Paul doesn't say that you have to like the people there. but He does say that we must rightly relate to them. Likewise, we should, we should be thankful that we live, live in a place where we can work, vote for change in these ways. But desiring a different governor or a different president doesn't mean we treat the one that we dislike with malice, and with rage. A right relation to civil authority is actually intended to make the gospel attractive. But our relationship outside the church doesn't just end there. And our job is really not just to say we want to find the people in power. And we want to curry favor with them so that our lives are easier and so that the gospel goes forward more, uh, goes forward farther. We are actually called to live in right relation with all people. That's what Paul says in verse two. Remind them to speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle and to show perfect courtesy towards all people. As you read that list of people, have you ever found somebody who is the opposite of that? Uh, we have a three-year-old daughter, and, and right now her her movie of choice is Cinderella. And if you've ever had a three-year-old who has a movie of choice, it means that you watch it a lot. So we've seen we've seen Cinderella a lot over the past six months or so. And uh, I thought immediately of the wicked stepsisters in the movie. They are constantly demeaning. They fight over very little, small, silly things. There's one scene where they have this necklace that they just grab and both pull so hard that it breaks which I think I've seen the exact scene play out in my own house. But she, and they, they, they are rough. They're mean to everybody who they, who they deem lower than them. And that is pretty much everybody in the movie. And that kind of character attracts nobody. It is flowing from a selfish and a sinful heart. And then contrast that with the title character, with Cinderella. She has a hard lot in life. And there's all these excuses maybe she could give to say, I don't have to treat people like this. They're really wrong to me she's gentle and she's kind. She's courteous even to mice and dogs and cats. She even manages to treat her stepsisters, her stepmother, with a, a certain kind of dignity. And it's why once a week in, in our house, if things get really quiet, the first instinct that Laura and I have is to worry just a little bit. But, but then there's about 30 seconds later, Ruth comes sprinting out of her room in a Cinderella costume and not a wicked stepsister costume. My, my three year old knows and sees this and says there's one of these characters is repulsive and I don't want to be like them. And there's one of these characters that is actually attractive and that I want to be like. And friends, God's people are meant to be. We are called to be cities on a hill, letting our light shine before men. And it is hard and people see you. And it is hard to let your light shine when you are constantly treating people like garbage. And so, brothers and sisters, are you treating those around you who are outside the faith with the dignity and the courtesy that you should? When your co-workers or your family members or your neighbors who maybe are, are not Christians, when, when they hear you talk about the hope that you have in Christ, maybe you're even evangelizing them and asking them to come to church to repent and believe... Is your life before them, does it make the gospel attractive to them? Or does it actually make it harder for them to believe that the gospel is real and that it has any impact on your life? God would have us to look at our lives, to examine our lives and live in such a way that the gospel is attractive to those outside the church. Now being kind and courteous, that sounds good in the abstract, and I don't know anybody who says, I really want to go treat people terribly today. I don't think anybody wakes up and says that. The hard part of this is not the idea, can okay, we all understand the idea of we want to go treat people with kindness and courtesy and gentleness? The hard people is that you have to interact with actual people, and that sometimes makes it very difficult. So we, we all know that we want to treat, we can treat kind people with kindness. That's pretty easy. They're they're kind to you, you return it back to them. They say, thank you, you tip your hat or do whatever and you, you go on your way. That's easy. It's a different thing to treat those who are rude and argumentative and downright nasty with the kindness that God calls us to. But we are called, this text is actually really clear. He says, show kindness to all people. And I think when he says all people, that's what he means. And here's why that is. Why all people? Why not just huddle up in the church where we say, like, we're brothers and sisters. Our relationships are changed and we want to love each other naturally. I think he calls us and he helps us see why this is not just for people inside the church or even for other nice people in the next few verses where we see that God's grace is what motivates this. It's God's grace that is motivating this. Look at Titus 3 Three through seven. This is the third time that we have read these words in this service, but these are ones that are worth repeating. For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, He saved us. Not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy. By the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior. So that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. So why are we to be ready for every good work? It's because God saved us when we were at our worst. Many of these Christians on the island of Crete, they probably don't have to go too far back into their history to see their reflection in verse 3. Some may have had lives that were notoriously wicked. All of them, whether their sin was gross and public, or private, interior, maybe even cheered on by others. They were slaves to various passions. Their lives were characterized by selfishness and hatred towards others. Now, there may have been some there, like I would assume many of us here who look at that list and maybe say, I'm not that bad. So if you uh, were here last week at the pot, like I I shared a little bit of my testimony. I became a Christian at the age of five or six. I don't think I was four years old and out slashing people's tires as a terrible four-year-old. But... I do know that we, the Bible is very clear that apart from Christ, we are all slaves to sin. We are bound to sin as a cruel master. And whether that sin manifests itself as murder or if it just manifests itself as materialism, it's the same rotten root that's at the core. And for anyone who would disagree with that, who say, actually, I kind of done, I've done enough to merit God's favor. Paul cuts your legs out from you in verse five. Look at verse five. He saved us not because of works done by us in righteousness. Your apparent goodness was not enough. It was not enough to merit or to earn God's favor. And if we look back on our former lives and we say we deserved grace that we received, we have grossly misunderstood a lot of things, but we have grossly misunderstood what sin actually is. We want to, kind of the natural man in us, wants to measure sin by just kind of holding up our lives and then looking to our neighbor. And it's never the neighbor who you think is really good. It's always the one who you just know, like I come out on the winning end of this comparison. But the Bible tells us if you want to measure sin, we don't look to your neighbor. You can you can look at a lot of places, but maybe look at what it costs to atone for sin. That's why we sing songs that don't say something like, Sin was just a small smudge that I cleaned up. My my self-righteousness is actually kind of easy to clean up and look a little bit better before God. No, we, we we sing songs that say things like, There is a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins and sinners who are plunged beneath that flood lose all their guilty stains. That's what it takes to atone for your sin and for mine. We are not so good that it is an easy job it is something that god himself had to send his very son god did not save us because we were good enough he saved us when we were at our worst and he did it at great personal cost and if if we were at this point when he saved us then we know that god's mercy is not based on our character it is based on his character Our good works are not drawing forth something of his grace that we can manipulate that he comes to us. It's his own goodness and his own mercy that bursts forth in love to save us. God saves us based on his character and in his mercy, God gives us new life by his spirit, declaring us innocent. That's what Paul says there when he says that we were saved by washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. That language and some of the surrounding language should draw us back to Ezekiel 36, a great promise made to God's people. God's people are in exile and they're told by God that he's coming to rescue them, to gather them back and to vindicate his name in their lives. And he promises them this, I will sprinkle clean water on you. It's fulfilled in salvation to God's people that is applied to them by his Holy Spirit. So at your conversion, brother or sister, you were spiritually washed and cleansed. You were made new and clean by the power of the Holy Spirit. At that same time, you were renewed. You were given a new heart by God's Spirit. One of the church fathers, John Chrysostom, he illustrates this idea. what, What God had to do in comparing us to a house. So... Think of this this way. For as when a house is in a ruinous state, no one places props under it or makes any addition to the old building. We're not like the farmhouse that you drive. We're like the farmhouse you drive by where it's dilapidated and falling to pieces. You don't just fix that up. No, you pull it down to its foundations and rebuild it anew. And so in this case, God has not repaired us, but has made us anew. And the result of that is that we stand as new men and new women. Before a holy God, we are justified and declared righteous by his grace. We have a new standing, a not guilty verdict that comes to us, not because of our goodness, but what we were saying earlier, his own mercy. And while a right legal standing, so being declared not guilty is good, but God actually goes beyond that. Think of a a movie you've seen where, where maybe people are getting out of prison They were found guilty, and now they realize that it was a mistrial. They're innocent, or maybe they serve their time. Whatever that looks like, they go outside, and uh, the movie shows them. And the question that's almost always asked is like, what happens next? What do they do now? Freedom is good, but what now? Well, God, God doesn't just declare us innocent. He doesn't just give us freedom from sin. God actually brings us in, and he adopts us as his children giving us a new inheritance. Right? We are heirs according to the hope of eternal life. Formerly foolish, but now friends of God, at one time disobedient, now daughter or son, once led astray by various passions, now led in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. We've gone from a people destined to hell to a people who have heaven as our inheritance. And friend, this is this is the good news of Christianity, that a gracious, merciful God paid the highest possible cost to save sinners and to bring them into union with Him. So, friend, if you are here and you you are not a Christian, our question to you is: Have you found this gift? Have you been made new by God? As you read this passage, you may have in your own mind something turning over in your head, some past sin. Maybe even some present sin that you say, I I just don't know. I've got to work and clean myself up just a little bit more. And when I get to this level of cleanliness, God will embrace me as his own. But friends, your past or your present is no obstacle to the saving work of God. You come to him and you will find mercy for your past and hope for your future. And if you don't know this God, If you do not know him, please find me after service. I will be around. Find anybody in this church who's a Christian. If you came with a friend today, we'd ask you just to find them and ask them what it looks like to follow Christ today. Now, for those who are uh, who are Christians, brothers and sisters in Christ who are trusting in Jesus, Paul brings up here the mercy of God, not just so that we have really good theology. He wants that. He wants good theology. But he's actually pressing this, I think. He's actually pressing this and saying this should be something that we reflect back in our lives to those outside, those people in verses 1 and 2. And so, brothers and sisters, is the way that you treat people based on their character or on God's character? Think back to some of the people in in your own life. Think back to people in your life who, who adorned the gospel. So think about that first point and say, this is how these connect. Who was it that God maybe be used you in your life on your way to trusting in Jesus, who made the gospel attractive to you? Maybe it was that friend who in college, while you were pursuing everything that you wanted, it had no mind for the things of God. This friend came alongside you and loved you and ministered to you all throughout it. No matter what you did, he was by your side. Or maybe you were you were saying as a child or even as an adult, you, a child saying like, I, I'm in rebellion against God and your parents were loving and kind and tender and patient. Don't you want to be that kind of person for someone else? Someone whose life makes the gracious character of God just spring to life before their eyes. We want God by his grace to help us to treat people based not on their character or what we think they deserve, Based on the character of the God who has saved us when we were at our worst. Paul concludes this section here in verse 8 with a call to Titus to teach these truths in the church. The saying is trustworthy. I want you to insist on these things so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. These things are excellent and profitable for people. This teaching of the gospel leads to a people who display good works. That's what we've said throughout the whole book. And this kind of right belief right living is excellent in God's sight and profitable for people. Now, this grace is so important that it it actually, it bends and kind of molds us into ways that we interact with others. It works in our hearts, in our lives to, to say we want our interactions with those around us, not just to be based on what we think is right in that moment. We want it to be something that makes Christ and his word look attractive. But there are other groups. So maybe there's people who thinking about people who are indifferent. We want them to say, I don't want to be indifferent. I want to hope in Christ. But beyond that, there, there are people who are not indifferent to the call of the gospel, but who are actually trying to undermine it, maybe undermine the church. And we need to ask the question Does our love for God's grace does the urgency of God's mission going out into the, all the world. Does it have something to say on interactions with that group? And this is where Paul turns to next, where he says that we ought to separate from those who are dividing the church. Look at Titus 3, 9 through 11. But avoid foolish controversies, genealogies, dissensions, and quarrels about the law, for they are unprofitable and worthless. As for a person who stirs up division after warning him once and then twice, have nothing more to do with him. Knowing that such a person is warped and sinful, he is self-condemned. Paul gives two commands here. First, they are to avoid foolish teaching because they're worthless, because that teaching is worthless. Uh, we mentioned this back in Titus 1, so there's a lot of Paul's letters that have details about what's being taught. So if you go to Galatians, you can kind of see what the opponents of Paul, what the opponents of Christianity are teaching in that book. But here in Titus, there's very little information giving on what is being taught here. There's some hints in chapter 1 that maybe it has to do with Jewish purity laws like circumcision or eating food. Here Paul tells us to avoid genealogies, which is not a command to go cancel your Ancestry.com account. It's just probably something related to what the teaching is happening in this church. They're fixated on these and making applications and drawing theology from that they shouldn't be. It's just foolish teaching. But I, I think the reason that we don't have Paul saying like a detailed outline of, here's what's being taught in the, group, in the churches in Crete, actually is kind of right here. Okay, the, the positions that these people have, it's foolish. There's no substance to it. Uh, have you have you ever tried to argue with a toddler on? Uh, so it's a cloudy day outside and you just say, the sun is still out there. And they will go until they're blue in the face. The sun is not out there. That is a foolish argument. You will not win it because they're just going to keep repeating the same thing over and over and eventually you just say, we're going to, Let's go have a cookie. Let's go watch Cinderella, right? We're going to do something different. We avoid that teaching. And he said that this kind of teaching is that. There's no substance to it. And so don't listen. Don't give credence to foolish teaching. Just avoid it. Giving your time and attention to this is a net negative. You're trading in the profitability of verse 8, of good doctrine and good works, for the unprofitability of talking about nonsense. Now, this I do think that in application, this can get kind of tricky. So you have false teaching or you have, there's a new Christian book, uh, Christian, there's a new book on the Christian bestseller list that you go to Barnes and Noble and you have some questions about what it's teaching and you're not sure, is this something that is just ridiculous that I avoid or is this something that is actually really serious and I need to confront and rebuke? Let me just give a few quick ways, uh, some ways about thinking through that question. I think that's an important question. I think God actually does help us think about this in a couple ways. ways. So, so three diagnostic tools on like, is this foolish teaching that I just avoid like Titus three, or is this Galatians one type of teaching that is a curse that actually leads people to hell? Okay. So the first question, this is most important and probably where you know, I'm going, what does the Bible say about this teaching? What does the Bible say about this teaching? Okay, so uh, I, I had a, a friend at one point who just, I think he read this probably on a blog because you can write whatever you want to on a blog and nobody really argues with you. But it was a, a saying that churches should be organized so that I should be like in the center here and in a circle, you should all be around me. And he got fixated on this idea. This is the way that architecture and churches should be. And we talked about it for maybe five minutes and then I said, man, I think that is, uh, I think that's weird. But if you want to, if you think it, that's fine, but let's just go back to the book of Proverbs that we were reading together. <laughs> Why don't we do that? Okay, that, that's something that I just say, like, that's, that's a little silly. We'll, we'll, okay, I'll just avoid that. Uh, if you hear someone, though, teach that we're saved by living good lives, our works are actually something that God needs. We do our works, and that is something that God looks upon, and he saves us because of our works. The Bible is very clear and uniform on that. You can, again, just go to the book of Galatians and say, the Bible has already spoken to this and I know that this is something that is treated with seriousness and severity. And so I want to not just kind of let that go, but I want to rebuke that and correct that friend, that brother or sister, in the name of loving division and knowing what is right and say, come back, don't turn turn away from that, not just foolish teaching, but but terrible, hellish teaching. Okay, so go to the Bible. Second, uh, thankfully... You and I are not the first Christians to ever walk the earth. And so there is like 2,000 years of people wrestling with questions that we find today and sometimes think are very new. And so you can look to church history and say, what what does church history have to tell me about this? Uh, I, I was just out of college and a popular pastor and author came out with a book that was arguing that hell is not real. And that everybody will eventually get to heaven or at least You know, maybe Hitler won't get to heaven, but almost everybody else will get into heaven. And I had a lot of friends who were wrestling with their faith thinking, what do we do with this? And thankfully, by God's good providence, I was in a church history class at that time. So I was actually seeing an argument that people were like, this is brand new to me. And it's terrifying. And I was like, this this is a very old thing that people have said. And let me tell you, for for 2000 years, this is something that the church has uniformly condemned. And said it's not just like a little problem we ignore, but something that we attack. And and so it it was a help to me. This wasn't a new argument. This is something that Christians had been talking about. I could go back and read what they had said before me. And if that, that's maybe that's intimidating, you say, well, you, you took a seminary class and that's pretty simple for you. Let me just encourage you. Go go find the Apostles Creed or the Nicene Creed. Those are things that you can look at that even a child can understand. We, we say every week at Christ Fellowship Church, they help teach just some of the basic doctrines of the Christian faith, even to our children. Or you can go look at the statement of faith that, that this church adopts, the, the Baptist faith and message so similar to that and say, where is this speaking clearly? And I want to speak clearly where that is. Or is this just foolish controversy? And then finally, when in doubt, if you say, I- I'm not sure where to go, uh, what do my elders say about this teaching? This is actually, this, this is just a gift given to you from Titus. So if you look back in Titus 1.9, uh, this list of what elders do, Titus 1, nine: an elder must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught so that he may be able to give instruction and in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. Okay, so part of the job of the elders at Crete and in Philadelphia Baptist Church is that they are to protect the church from false teaching. And they are ha- happy to help you think carefully about that book in Barnes & Noble that you pass and say, I don't know about this teaching, and I can't tell if it's just slightly off, if it's good, or if it's something that I need to rebuke wholeheartedly. Okay, your elders are here to guard your lives and your loved ones from following false teaching. Or to help you to encourage, avoid something foolish. And so we, we avoid. If you come across foolish teaching, something that is empty and has no substance, we're just told to avoid it because it's worthless. But then, from verse 9 to verse 10, there is this ratcheting up, this intensification that happens. And we move from simply not getting involved in foolish teaching to a command to separate from divisive people because they're warped and sinful. Okay, so a, a foolish controversy may quickly pass if it's ignored. But, but if that foolish controversy persists or if false teaching persists, that division that comes from that, that can come from that, is a serious threat. And just like we said, rightly understanding the gospel, rightly knowing the gospel makes us want to adorn and make it attractive to those outside the church. Rightly understanding the gospel should lead us to protect the name of Jesus from those who would divide the church. The church of Jesus Christ is meant to be a display of God's glory. A a local embassy of Christ's heavenly kingdom where people can look in and see what it's like for redeemed people to live in new relationship with one another. And since the threat to God's glory displayed in the world here is, is ramped up, so too is the reaction that God's people are to have with this person. It's no longer just a void, but it's separate. And this text has clear echoes of a place, uh, other places where we talk about this. Matthew eighteen fifteen through 17. This person should be warned against their sins, shown the seriousness of their fault. But if he will not listen to honest and loving commands to repent, then the church should separate from him. On the face of that, that may sound harsh and unkind. But, but Paul elsewhere, actually, I, I think he talks about this type of teaching and uses the, the reference of gangrene. So he talks about it as, as an analogy of a health malady, something that is problematic. And gangrene usually starts really small, like uh, it can start on a toe or something and frostbite, and you may think like that's something that I just want to keep an eye on, but, but we'll just let it go for a little bit. But it is, it's deadly to do that. It's problematic to do that. You, you, it may seem insignificant, but if it's not treated quickly, it can spread. And even fatally so. And so the treatment is to cut off the infected member. And it's not because you just like cutting off toes. It's because you value the health of the body. Because you say that the body is at stake. And so in cases of divisive teaching in the church today, the loving thing to do is not simply to let a cancerous teaching spread. We should warn and lovingly implore people to stop division. But if they will not listen, then love moves us to this kind of painful separation. It's a love for the people in your church who are at risk for this teaching spreading among them. It's actually loving for the person who is teaching that false doctrine. It's loving for them because you are telling them, if you continue in this, I think you are on a road, friend, that leads to hell. Turn. And it's love ultimately for the name of Jesus. We say we don't want the glory of God to be tarnished in the eyes of those around us. We want His glory to be seen clearly. And so a right understanding of the gospel of grace in Christ helps us and moves us out of love to separate from those who would divide the church. Now that kind of work is not the type of work that we crave, the type of thing that we really love doing. It's done out of necessity in the name of, when the name of Christ is at stake. What I think we naturally prefer is to come together. We want instead to work with others to see the gospel spread farther. Beyond the bounds of this church. Beyond the bounds of this nation even. And that's where Paul takes us next and where he closes the letter. So the same love for the gospel that compels us to separate from those dividing the church. It pushes us to support those serving the church. Look at Titus three twelve through 15. Now, a couple of these names you may know because they show up in different places in the New Testament. So Apollos is a persuasive and eloquent spokesman for the gospel in the book of Acts. Tychicus uh, carries several letters of Paul. He's well-traveled. He's a, a, a messenger for Paul. But along with them, I, I love when we see these people like Artemis and Zenas who nowhere else in Scripture are mentioned. And in God's good providence, their names are enshrined for us in here. It's a picture of your name being enshrined in the book of life. Nobody knows. I don't know anything about who these people are. But God does. And God values their work. And these, these short greetings and instructions that we see here, I think it shows us just how much Paul felt the need for gospel co-workers. Paul doesn't just simply say it's to Titus, so this is the command he gives to Titus. He doesn't say just go find your next ministry assignment. He desires for Titus to come to him at Nicopolis. That's maybe partly to give an update. How are the churches in Crete doing? How's how is everything going there? But beyond that, Titus would be an encouragement to Paul in his own ministry. Just think about the way that Paul talks about his joy throughout his letters that he finds in brothers and sisters working for the spread of the gospel. 2 Timothy 1.4, he longs to see, Timothy, I long to see you, that my joy may be filled. 1 Thessalonians 2.20, his joy is in the people in the church at Thessalonica. Philemon 7, I've derived much joy and comfort from our partnership. On and on throughout his letters, Paul takes encouragement from other workers for the gospel. God uses these men in his life to give them encouragement to continue in gospel ministry. Do you know anyone like that? Do you know someone who helps put wind in your sails? That guy when you just say, I am at my end. I don't know how I can keep going in this stretch of the journey I have ahead of me. And it's the person that you call and say, let's go get coffee because you just encourage my heart in the Lord. We want to pray that we have those people, we want to be those people for others. We need gospel co-workers who propel us forward to Christ and out into the world. And then beyond his own encouragement, Paul doesn't just want his own encouragement. He tells Titus to be sure to support other gospel co-workers. So we don't know where Zenus and Apollos were going, but Paul says they should be sent out lacking nothing. They were to be supported, not just like half-heartedly or maybe even worse, but grudgingly. give them a little bit, but... Really resent what you're having to get to them. Now send them out generously. And over the past several months of talking about the potential church partnership between Christ Fellowship Church and Philadelphia Baptist Church, I've seen I've seen this text come to life as I've been the overwhelming recipient of love and support from some dear brothers and sisters at CFC. Our senior Pastor Bart has not once. Uh, tried to talk me out of this or been territorial and say like you can have other people visit but don't let this dude visit that's a bad we want to keep him here nick one of our associate pastors has brought this up as a matter of public prayer on a nearly weekly basis the elders of my church their first question was not like what what's the financial hit that this is going to make to christ fellowship church but they said how much could we give to support and to encourage this work uh, my friends, I, I got this, I don't know what it says that I got texts during Bart's sermon from some friends encouraging me and saying they're praying for me, but I've had many people text and tell me that they're, uh, they're praying for this. And then many of those who are even here today have said that they're willing to, to leave a church that they love and that has loved them. Not because it's easy, but because of the sake of greater kingdom partnership. Brothers and sisters, we should pray That God brings about more and more opportunities to support his work. We want to send out gospel laborers in ways that show our depth of love for Christ and for those who are doing his work. We are not in competition with one another. We want to see his victorious word go abroad and bring the stranger home. We want to ask Not what's the minimum that we can give so that we can be counted as supporters, but how do we lavish upon them the things that they need as they go out to serve his church? Paul's last commands here, as he closes this book, they're tied back to the purpose of the letter. He just can't stop saying, devote yourself to good works. Remember the gospel. Let it transform your life so that your life looks new. We want the church of Crete to be filled with people who are devoted to this, and their godliness should be evident, helping those in urgent need, displaying the fruit of a life it's rooted and grounded in Christ. And the grace of God that we have seen in Christ is intended by God to explode outward. We are not a church that's content on simply having good theology and living rightly here. Or simply holding on for dear life. Dear Lord, help me make it to heaven. Help us get to the celestial city, but not think about others. And we long to see the Lord fill his house. To fill his temple. We want to see every tribe and nation and language. We want to see our neighbors coming to him. And so because of and by God's grace. We want to adorn the gospel to those who are outside the church. We want to protect the reputation of God's name. We we want to when when needed separate from those who would damage the church. And we want to support those who are working to serve the church. Both here here. And abroad. And brothers and sisters of Philadelphia Baptist Church, my prayer for you is this may, may God's overwhelming and transforming grace be with you all. And may His grace be evident in your lives for the grace and glory and praise of God and for the spread of His name among all nations. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your grace and for your mercy that was overwhelmingly poured out on us we thank you that you have renewed and restored us you have given us new life by your spirit and lord i pray that as we go out from here i pray even this week as we are interacting with people around us who don't know you that you would give us your mind that we would not just treat them based on what we think they deserve at that moment but based on the character of jesus knowing that we too that apart from the grace of god we go there so Lord, give us your mercy and your grace. And we do pray that your kingdom would come. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.